Welcome to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and in this podcast series, I interview physicians, medical innovators, and entrepreneurs making an impact on healthcare. This podcast is produced by DaVinci Academy, a multimedia medical education company that provides podcasts, video courses, and digital textbooks. You can see more on our website, www.dbiacademy.com and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash DaVinci Academy Med. This podcast is sponsored by Doc2Doc, the personal lending platform designed for doctors by doctors. Do you have some big expenses in the near future? Maybe you're moving, applying to residency or fellowship, fixing up your car or home, or starting a new practice. Doc2Doc believes that traditional lenders overestimate the risk of lending money to doctors, residents, and medical students, focusing too much on the challenges of their financial past and giving them insufficient credit for the promise of their financial future. Check out Dr. Doc's personal loan options at drdoclending.com slash DaVinci. Hey everybody, welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm honored this week to be joined by Dr. Danny Goyle, a orthopedic surgeon in Vancouver and then also the founder and CEO of Precision OS, a virtual reality company working on improving the uh, surgical simulation and surgical education. So Dr. Goyle, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Max. Great to be here today. Awesome. Awesome. So maybe give us a little bit of background on yourself, You know, where you went to school, where you did your training, and just kind of a general overview of your, your clinical practice right now. Yeah, sounds great. I uh, was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba. For, for the people that not don't know where that is, it's just north of North Dakota. And uh, I did my med school there as well as my uh, master's degree in science and actually cardiac physiology of all things. And uh, then I went to Calgary to pursue my residency training in orthopedic surgery. And that was a five-year uh, trip. And from there, I moved to London, Ontario for a one-year fellowship and then Boston for a second-year uh, fellowship as well. And then back to Vancouver, where I practice primarily doing shoulder reconstruction. Oh, awesome. Yeah. The, the shoulder, there's a lot of shoulder injuries out there and it's a, it's a complex, it's a really complex joint. I remember rotating with some of the shoulder surgeons in med school and it's, it's amazing, both the arthroscopic and then also the open techniques you guys do. It's pretty cool stuff. Yeah. It's very interesting. Certainly it's a, it's a fascinating joint. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so I guess your practice, is it, is it academic or is it private practice? Is it like a mix of both? Like, I, I guess, how does that, how does that work? In Canada, we have uh, what's referred to as uh, community, community academics, and then academic. And so community would be is when you're working at a hospital where there's really no teaching and you don't do research. Community academics, where you do have involvement with the residents, the fellows, and then you do some research to your to your own benefit and for your own interest. And then academics is usually where you're doing both. And then sometimes that's a salaried position. So I practice in a community academic setting where we have teachings, where we teach medical students, residents, and uh, occasionally fellows, and where I pursue my own research endeavors. So that's sort of the practice I have. Awesome. Very cool. Uh, I guess, so going off that, what what was the inspiration to start Precision OS? I guess what, you know, you're this busy surgeon. I, I imagine that kept you busy enough, but what what kind of was the impetus for starting this company? You know, it's a great question, and when I really dig into it, uh, the I think it goes back to my own desire to be the best surgeon I possibly could. And, you know, I pursued, uh, you know, powerful residencies with really well-known people who are skilled surgeons, 
but you know, despite doing that, I wanted to still improve my skill even more. And so I pursued trips and travel and went to meetings to get better. And it, it certainly occurred to me that that's not available to a lot of people in the world where I can't just jump on a plane, not me, but somebody else from say different part of the world can't just jump in a plane and go and visit a famous surgeon in X university. Logistically, that's a problem and a challenge. And there's so much value in that type of learning where you connect with another mentor because you learn and you see and you hear things that you just can't translate from a video. So when I, in, when I, was, uh, when I met Rob, actually, I, I owe it to my spouse. My wife actually was, is friends with his wife <laughs> and they used to take her kids to gymnastics and they were friends. And they said, you guys should really meet each other. When I met Rob, who's one of our co-founders, he comes from a game development background. So a strong 25-year experience uh, in that space. He introduced me to Colin, who was working in VR. And so the three of us, you know, literally, we were in a basement experimenting with VR. And it absolutely surprised me at how engaging it was. And that was back in 2017. Oh, wow. So that's yeah. you know, coming up on a little over five years, six years now. That's, that's right. That's yeah. impressive. Yeah. Um, so I guess those early days, you know, when you kind of took that leap, I guess, did you start with just a prototype, kind of building it out of your garage, so to speak? And, and was that... I guess, well, how did you, how did you kind of put things together? How did you essentially build a virtual reality prototype? <laughs> As a shoulder surgeon, we started in the shoulder. So we built uh, collectively eight or nine different prototypes to say, you know, what could we actually do in VR back in 2017? So back then you have to remember there was a really high powered game computer, lots of wires attached to a really heavy headset, and then trackers that were on a tripod to determine where you were in space. And so we built eight or nine different prototypes and we showed people because we believe that you shouldn't build something in a silo. You need to expose it, even though I'm, an, I'm a user of our software, um, we wanted to show it to as many people as we possibly could. And the reactions were astounding. You know, back then that was, we went to a meeting in 2017 and, you know, we showed medical students, residents, fellows, surgeons in practice, both early and late, as well as the medical device, some colleagues that I know in the medical device space. And immediately you can see the value of VR, but the value comes when you actually put the headset on, not if I show you a video of it, as we all know. Because when you're in a three-dimensional space that's completely digital and looks realistic, you know, your first thought is, wow, this is quite impressive that I didn't actually appreciate when I saw a video. So that that type of iterative type of approach is something that we carry with us and have been for the last five years. That's very cool. Very cool. I'm curious, you know, when, you know, when you're an early startup and you're building a team, you know, it sounds like you, you found co-founders that were at skills that complemented yours as a, as a mm -hmm. clinician. And, and like you said, you know, the end user as well. I'm curious, what, how have you gone about like building the team? How, what, have, especially in those early days, what were kind of the criteria? Cause in a way it's, it's almost like a marriage in a way when you bring on yeah. co-founders and especially when you talk equity and stuff like that. So I'm curious, what, how did you go about that process? I think that uh, it's a great question. And early on, we had a lot of conversations about what our goals were. You know, why do we want to do this? And having never been in a startup before, you know, Rob and Colin have both been involved in startups and they've exited startups in the past. And they know it's a, it's a slog. There's a lot of work. It's an emotional roller coaster. And it's a commitment, not only for you, but for your families. Uh, so the real question came down to why do we want to do this? You know, are we are we really interested in VR or are we more interested in the impact that's going to have around the world? And that's where we really resonated. So the, the three of us had that core belief that we could change 
how healthcare is delivered around the world with this technology back in 2017. So that that core sort of you know belief in what we could do with the product really cemented that marriage. And then we happen to have the complementary skills. Colin is our CTO. He comes from a really strong background of rendering as a software engineer. You know, Rob brings what we do to life. And then I had that educational lens. And, you know, one of the things you learn as an entrepreneur early on is you really have to check your ego at the door and really come to terms with what you don't know. And then you talk to people who know about those things to help give you guidance on, you know, you need this person, you need that person. And we built around that to say we need people who are experienced in X, Y, and Z domain because we are lacking those ex- those levels of expertise. And you build a company with that mindset. I think those are excellent points. You know, it's, we were talking before we started recording about how my interview with Mark Cuban, one thing he mentioned about physician entrepreneurs where they can get into trouble is where they try to do everything and they think they know everything. And I think you just illustrated that, you know, go find it, you know, the better way to do that is to find people that complement your skills and, and, you know, that have you know, have experiences that you don't have. So I think kudos to you. That's, it sounds like you've built like an amazing team. I'm curious, you know, so where are you guys now? Where, where's your product at? What's your guys offering right now? Um, and kind of what stage are you at in, in that, in that uh, scope of things? Uh, so I think from a company perspective, you know, we continue to commercialize our product. Uh, there's, there's, it's still a lot of R and D happening within VR, I would say globally across multiple different companies because the space is still early. And so we, our customers are the medical device companies and the residency training programs as our two primary customer base. And we sell into them because there's value for them. It's easier to train somebody in a virtual space with another colleague than it is to fly, you know, two surgeons from their homes to a remote location to actually learn those products or learn about how to successfully and safely use a product. So the value captured and delivered through VR is what we are currently focused on. And, uh, you know, we have a team of over 50 right now, uh, 50 people, they're distributed and we're, that's a COVID phenomenon because we never thought, or at least intellectually, I never thought that we would ever hire anybody outside of Vancouver, but COVID certainly changed that for me for the positive. And so that's kind of where we are as a company. That's awesome. I'm curious from the the medical device standpoint, I guess, is this an opportunity for the medical device companies to let people try, essentially virtually try out their their devices, their products? Because I'm, I'm sure, you know, orthopedics, the same, similar to IR, there's so many devices out there and there's so many new devices coming out and it's it's almost a an, a whole job just to keep up with with what these are. Is that is that kind of what you're going for? And I guess, how do people demo the devices if that's the case? So we can actually import a medical device into our virtual environment. And I think what's unique about every medical device has a unique value offering and they're not commoditized. Uh, some of them are, but some of them are not. And I think showcasing why you would use a particular device in a particular scenario is why where VR actually becomes really relevant and valuable. And so they can actually pick up a virtual product and they can actually put it against a virtual bone. And the thing that we do that's unique um, is we actually can allow the user to make a mistake using a medical device in a virtual environment. And when you go back to the lo- the science of learning, and we know this as physicians, actually it's, it applies to all of us, whether it's physician, non-physician, uh, you know, somebody in music or sports, is you learn the most when you make a mistake. So unless we're delivering that in VR, uh, I think the value is more superficial, but we want to dig deeper into that. So let's use a medical device product, make a mistake in VR so you don't make it in the operating room. 
and at the same time learning about the value proposition of that medical device. I think that's an excellent point. As as a resident in training, I can certainly attest to that. I learn much more from when I make a misstep or a mistake than uh, right. when I'm cruising along doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. Um, so I think that's an excellent point. And I think with virtual reality, what's so great is that you kind of dec- you know it's a little bit of a decrease decrease stress environment. You know, like I can attest as a you know a trainee. You know, when you're in the case and it's live and you don't want to mess up, you don't want to piss off your attending, and it's it's a little bit more not always the most ideal learning environment. So I think, you know, it's great that the trainees and even other doctors who aren't familiar with the devices can test these out. I think that's awesome. Uh, I'm curious, is there like to get that tactile feedback? Is there, I guess, what's your guys setup? Like, do you guys have a headset? Do you have like, you know, hand pieces? I guess, how do they get that? If there is a tactile feedback component to the device, how do they get that? So we use the MetaQuest 2, uh, which is, um, uh, it's built by Meta or what used to be Facebook. Sure. And sure. with the with the Quest 2 headset come these controllers that actually have actuators in them that vibrate when you need them to. So if you're, say, drilling through bone or cutting through bone with a saw, the controllers can actually vibrate according to the thickness of the bones. So this is where the brilliance of Colin comes in, our software, our CTO, who's ch- we can change the co- the vibration of the controllers if you're drilling through thicker or thinner bone, which actually emulates what we do in real life or what we see in real life. The other thing that happens is the sound of the saw or the drill changes. So when you drill or saw through thicker or thinner bone, there's a change in sound, which we refer to as uh, pitch. And then, of course, the third thing is, which is the bone actually can deform. So we actually make the bone deform if you're cutting it or drilling it. So those three those three core feedbacks are available uh, in addition to what we see with the control of the haptic. And the question that we always ask, or certainly I'm continuing to deliberate in my mind is, if we have a combination of those three core things currently in VR, how much more do we need to transfer that skill to the operating room? Is that enough or do we need more? And I don't know the answer to that yet. That's awesome. Uh, I'm curious, what what type of feedback are you getting from from physi- both residents and then physicians in practice in terms of the devices? Do they feel like it translates well when they go to use the device? I guess, what kind of feedback are you getting in that regard? So we have two modes of feedback, I would say. One is uh, we've proven it in the lab that it actually does transfer skill. So we published in uh, two jur- two big journals, and there's actually multiple journals now that have published on our product showing that when you use VR and comparing it to watching a video, reading a paper, or even doing a practice in a cadaver, that it's equal or better than doing any one of those three. The The next part of it is, does it translate into the real world? We've actually shown with a case study that we can take an in a completely inexperienced resident who's never done a case of this type before, have them practice in VR for about 10 to 15 minutes, and then do that exact procedure in the OR the next day. So that's the that's the first part. What we get from feedback is the residents know that they're lacking in surgical exposure because of everything that's happened over the last, say, decade. Decreased hours in the OR, uh, decreased exposure to volume of cases, et cetera. So they're hungry for getting more content or access to surgical skill. From a surgeon perspective, it's a way for us to connect other surgeons because mentorship is so powerful. And you know what it's like when you go to a meeting. I want to be around people that are going to, that are much smarter than me, that are going to teach me about how to think about a problem and not just think about a problem, but if I can be in their operating room, that is allowing me to appreciate what's referred to as embodied learning. What are the little nuances they do with the arm or the leg or, you know, with the particular patient position or instrument that I just, that doesn't translate very well 
either in a written form or in a video format. So we're getting really good feedback on both ends. Very cool. Very cool. I'm curious from the the residency training standpoint, you know, you said those are your, those are your other main customers of the mm-hmm. programs. I guess how how are they integrating that into their as their training? Is it something where the resident, you know, maybe the night before or the you know, a couple of days before would demo the surgery they're gonna do, or is it more kind of like what people do traditionally in like cadaver labs where they, you know, they, everyone groups together and they kind of practice their their skills and things like that. I guess how are you guys integrating it as far as that goes? So it's a really great question, Max, and how we see uh, our solution being integrated is we've released the world's first VR-based curriculum, and we've taken all our content and aligned it with the standards we see with ACGME in the U.S., as well as the Royal College of Physician Surgeons in Canada, to allow residency programs to actually integrate the solution into the ver- into their curriculum, uh, into their actual training program. Because simulation historically has been, you know, a product that sort of stands in a room and you sort of go there when you need to. But the analogy I use, it's sort of like having a basketball without a net. You don't really know where to, you know, how you're doing, how you're performing. So in to avoid that, we actually want to make sure that the software gets used on a regular basis. And we've done that by introducing this curriculum. That's amazing. Uh, you know, I think there's, you know, you've heard quotes as I'm sure you have, where people say things like, oh, well, VR was maybe a, it's a technology that's maybe ahead of its time or something like that. And that I feel like that may have been true a few years ago. Curious if, mm-hmm. if you agree with that or not. But now I think, especially with programs like this, where, you know, you have a curriculum, you have a way to use it integrated, it's following the ACGME. I think that's just amazing. And I think this is something that, you know, will greatly, uh, you know, improve surgical and, and procedural education. I think that's awesome. You know, I, I agree. I think it becomes another tool that we should deploy for the trainees at that level to help them enhance their skill if they're not getting it. And it becomes part of, it just becomes part of their learning profile. And then of course, on the surgeon side, we talked about that with that value of mentorship, but it's not, I don't think it's there to replace anything. I think it's there to significantly enhance your learning experience. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think, and like you said that, you know, there's been criticisms with the, you know, the work hour limitations and things like that, that with people getting less cases. And also there's, as you know, there's a, there's a lot of heterogeneity out there. Like it's not, right. not every program's the same. And even within each program, you know, I'm sure you can attest to back when you were resident, like, you know, attendings do things so differently and, right. you know, certain attendings will let you do more and some will let you do less. And so I think, you know, you could still, let's say there's a case where you do less. I feel like with VR, you could still get a lot out of that case sure. even by like, you know, prepping for it and then even practicing it on your own afterwards. I think it moves people into becoming a much more active learner, you know, because you can go into VR ahead of time. And then when you go to the operating room, you're already thinking sort of layers and layers above where if you didn't go into VR ahead of time, because you can do things like you can move the C-arm around, you can, you know, pull the anatomy out of the virtual patient. And I think it drives a deeper level of understanding to make you more of an active learner when you actually are in the OR. That's awesome. I'm curious, you know, is there a way for, I guess, maybe you guys are rolling this out or considering this where, you know, you could have a, a master, if you will, or like a, you know, someone who's world famous in some type of technique, could they virtually teach, you know, a set of residents or doc, you know, other, or just even, you know, attendings out there that want to learn more, like you said, is there, is that something that you see as a, as a reality in the near future? Actually, it's a reality today. Oh, that's amazing. So, so we've done, we've done experiences where we've had surgeons in Europe, uh, surgeons in Asia, North America and Australia connect all in the same virtual space at the same time where their avatars 
and they they have a frank dialogue about what they would do with a particular scenario. So that's happening today. So I think that's just going to get deeper and deeper in value as we sort of move through in the next several months and years. That's amazing. I'm curious from the from the business standpoint. So I guess your business model, it sounds like your two main customers are the medical device companies. And I guess one for them is it they probably look at it as almost a marketing standpoint, like where you know surgeons become more aware of their devices and then also become more comfortable with them. And then the programs, is it like a is it like a subscription model or I guess how I guess how are you guys uh, generating revenue in those two regards? So I'll, I'll talk about the medical device companies uh, for just a minute as well, because I think this is important. So the, the medical device companies, you know, they employ several hundred, sometimes thousands of medical device reps. They are such an important part to what we do in the OR that they, if they're new and don't know the products, they need to get onboarded onto the products. So we've, we've done sessions where we've trained up to 300 medical device reps using VR uh, because that's what they have to do anyway before they go to the OR and support a surgeon like me or somebody else. So because they're such a critical part of what we do in the operating room, the medical device companies do use our products to train their own salespeople. And because it's it's very lengthy and it's complex before they can actually get to the OR and support a surgeon. So that's the first way they use it. The second part they use it is, like you mentioned, is to educate people and to connect people peer-to-peer, surgeon-to-surgeon. That's the two ways. And the, the business model is a subscription business primarily on both the residency and the medical device side. That's interesting. And I didn't even think of that. That's a great point about training the reps on the devices. Cause like you said, it's the same thing in IR. They're often very critical to, mm-hmm. you know, how you use the device and and their knowledge is, and expertise in that regard is always, you know, very helpful, especially if it's a device you're unfamiliar with. So that's, right, that's exactly. amazing. Yeah. Um, so I cur- I guess as far as I'm always curious with, with these new technologies like this, what have you guys gotten any pushback from people when you, especially maybe in the more so in the early days, you know, before you had done studies and things. And I guess what type of pushback did you get? And I guess, how did you overcome that or mitigate it? Uh, so certainly pushback. And I think we see that with every single new technology. And uh, I'll tell you a story where a uh, personal story is when the iPhone came out, I actually bought an iPhone, but I had a Blackberry. I don't know if you remember or so remember what a BlackBerry is. Yeah, I, I had so, one. Yeah. Yeah. Did yeah. You? Oh, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I, I, I purchased an iPhone and I actually returned it because I liked the tactile sensation of my BlackBerry more. Me too. Me too. And, no, you did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and the, the person buying the counter says, you know, you're, you're the first person that's ever returned the iPhone. And I said, well, I really like the, the tactile feel of my BlackBerry. And of course, now I own an iPhone. Naysayers are really important for product development. I think you need to have pushback. Uh, on your product to make you better from a business, from product perspective. Because if you don't have it, you can be going along this pathway. I, I guess you're, unless you're really lucky where you, you know, you knock one out of the park and everybody loves your product out of the gates. But I think naysayers help you build a better product and deliver deeper value. So we welcome them. So when someone says, you know, Danny, I like your product, I say, this is great. But I always, I would always ask them, tell me what you hate about it. What do you really don't like about it? Where do you think the gaps are? And with with that type of information, that's how we made our product where it is today. But we continue to capture that negative feedback. And you know, things we hear are probably the things that you've heard with VR is you know the haptics. Uh, you know the uh, the headsets are big. You know I don't want to have a computer. And all these things are slowly disappearing. So we don't have a computer anymore. Computers in the headset. The controllers are getting smaller. Danny, it's expensive. Well, it's very cost-effective now to get a headset. You can buy it from Best Buy for $400, where it used to be, 
you know, $1,700 or $1,800. So all those things that we consider to be barriers from a hardware adoption perspective are disappearing. And then, um, but the naysayers have been very important for us. That's awesome. Uh, I'm curious from the, the education standpoint, I guess, kind of looking into the future, you know, you've just released this, this curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, how do you see that, I guess, playing into, I mean, do you see people almost doing like rotations virtually or like anything? And I realize I'm being maybe esoteric here, but I guess doing, you know, rotations with people in other facilities to learn like specialized techniques or things like that. Do you, or I guess, where do you foresee kind of the evolution of this in the education realm? I think there's, uh, there's no limits. You know, we could have people teaching residents and fellows from anywhere in the world. And in fact, um, this week's February 16th, we are actually doing a VR professor series. So we have a surgeon from London, Ontario. We have another surgeon from Calgary. Uh, We have a resident from New York that are all going to be in the same virtual space learning about how to do knee surgery, specifically ACL reconstruction. And there's going to be people from all over the world attending. And uh, so this is where I see this going is we're truly providing accessible education to people anywhere in the world. That's amazing. I'm curious, as, as an end user yourself, how, how have you used this in your practice and, and how do you think it's made you a better surgeon? So I, I've gone into some of our, our apps. So we've done shoulder arthroscopy. So being a shoulder surgeon is I can actually, I feel like when I go in there that I have a deeper understanding of the anatomy and where I would, how I would do things, how I'd position the patient than I did before. And that's being in practice for 10 years. So again, check your ego at the door or check my ego at the door and say, what do I really don't, what do I really not understand well with this particular problem in this particular scenario? And how can I use this to leverage that? So this is how I find it to be extremely valuable and uh, certainly increasing my engagement with it. That's amazing. And then I guess back to the the business end, I always like to ask this is, I guess, as far as fundraising, I guess, how did you guys, how have you guys done with fundraising? Like what you know, have you done multiple rounds? And I guess, where are you at in that? And are you still looking to raise funds uh, at this time? I, I once read that the role as CEO is uh, to do business development and always raise money. <laughs> so, you know, I'm always thinking about that. That's always uh, in my mind. And so we've done, uh, we've been primarily bootstrapped actually uh, to date. And oh, wow. so we've done, we've done some small rounds, friends and family uh, over the years. And uh, we've leveraged, uh, in Canada, we have a lot of opportunities for government grants, which we've used to our advantage as well. And so that's what we've done actually in the last uh, five years. So we've done no big VC funding to date. That's amazing. I guess from, from what I hear, that's, that's, that's the way to do it if you can pull it off, which it sounds like, it sounds like you guys are doing that. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I, th- I think it's all about ensuring that we're creating value for our customers and not getting ahead of our skis, so to speak. Sure, sure, yeah. sure. That's awesome. Um, and I guess as far as fundraising for the future, you guys uh, just continuing to fund yourself and fund through the company. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's uh, it's always a TBD, you know, to be sort of uh, discussed. But you know, we we want to take the opportunity to really ensure that our product is serving the value for our customers, and because um, that's that's the best type of fundraising is revenue is uh, when your customers actually pay for your product and are telling other customers about it and new customers. So that's a really important piece to us. We're really focused on our customer. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm, I'm also curious how you, are you still practicing full-time? And if you are, how, how are you balancing this, this company with practicing full-time? 
Yeah, so I would say it's it has decreased because I've been traveling a lot uh, because of the business. So when I'm not in town, uh, when I am in town, I usually try to do some clinics and then I'll, I try to operate as often as I can. And really, I've leveraged some of the things that come to surface after COVID. So telemedicine has become a big part of my practice. I can do a clinic from anywhere. And so I do that. Uh, you know, I have uh, and because I'm so focused on the shoulder, that's been nice because my mindset is there. And then I operate, like I mentioned, as often as I can when I'm in town. I think there's two reasons why I still do this. Number one is it's important to be close to the problem. And, you know, you being uh, in a physician as well, you know that you're seeing the things that are annoying you every day. So you probably are very close to having a solution because if they're annoying you or bothering you or limiting you, they're probably limiting other people as well. So that's the first reason. Number two, I mean, I really love what I do. You know, I spent 18 years, uh, we all did, you know, medical school, residency, and even before that, bachelor's degrees to get to where we are. And I think what we do is really, really important. And so that keeps me in practice and keeps my uh, sort of passion going. It also dovetails really nicely in what we do at Precision because we're close to the problem. And as I mentioned, being an end user, we want to make sure that we understand the problem intimately from a healthcare provider's perspective. So that really is the, are the two big reasons I stay in practice. Uh, on an ongoing basis. That's awesome. No, I totally get it. I mean, you, we spend all these years, all these, all these uh, sacrifices to become physicians. It, I, I imagine that would be hard to give up. And especially if you love what you do, that, that makes sense that you want to do continue to do both. That's yeah. awesome. I'm curious over, over the next 12 months, I guess, what, what big milestones are you guys hoping to hit at precision? So we, we have a lot of stuff that's uh, under R and D right now that we're hoping to showcase in the next, uh, you know, several months. Uh, our big plan is really the integration with the residency programs. They are the future of what we do in healthcare. And I think having them use the product, part of the curriculum is a massive focus for us this year. And I think that's where we're really pointed uh, for the next uh, year or so on the training programs. That's awesome. Um, well, my last question I, that I ask everybody is when you're not running precision or, or practicing surgery, what uh, what do you do in your, your spare time? How do you find that balance if you can find one? Uh, so my family gets up super early in the morning. <laughs> so we have two uh, young boys. So they're up at usually 4.30 or 5 in the morning, which actually works well because we're all up at that time. Uh, so I usually spend uh, the mornings with them and then I head to the gym. Uh, and then I go to the, go to office or go into precision. And, uh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a golf nerd. I like golf a lot. So, uh, you know, I, I, I did practice a lot before precision, but, uh, when I get a chance, me and the boys go to the driving range and, That's... uh, yeah, we, we enjoy that, that skill set. And then, uh, I try to spend as much time as I can schedule time with my wife as well. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm a yeah. big golfer myself. You can All right. see the, the balls behind <laughs> yeah, me. Yeah, I did, I did notice that. Yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I've heard there's yeah. some great courses over there on the, the west coast of uh, Canada. That's what's, yeah, Is there one that's your favorite out there? You know, I play at this course called Northlands, which is close by, and it's a public course. Uh, I don't have a membership anywhere, and I don't think I will because I like the diversity of courses. Sure. Uh, and it's it's a really nice walkable course, you know, and I usually play the black. I used to play the back nine. Uh, years ago, which would take, I could finish it in about an hour because it was just me on the back nine and yeah, I'm walking yeah. super fast. <laughs> but there's so many beautiful courses here, Max, uh, so many, and uh, they're hilly and depending on where you go. Uh, and it's lush because we're in a rainforest here, which is quite nice. 
that's awesome. I'll have to get out there sometime. There you go. <laughs> you're, probably, you're probably a lot better than I am based on those, those golf balls you have behind you there. Yeah. Well, like, like many of us, my, my handicap continues to go up oh, yeah. uh, as, as I <laughs> progress right. through training. I yeah, was much better right. in a, in an earlier life. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, Dr. Goyle, thank you so much for joining us and, and taking time out of your very busy schedule. Really appreciate it. The last thing is I want to make sure uh, people can find more about you and Precision uh, OS. Where, where's the best places for, for people to go? Yeah, thank you, Max. Um, the uh, people can find out a lot of information about us on our website. And they're welcome to communicate with us through our website. Uh, we have uh, multiple email contacts through there. And we're always happy to talk to anybody about what we're doing anywhere in the world because we're passionate about what we do and we think there's great value to be seen. That's awesome. Well, we will definitely provide the links to, uh, to those in the description. And uh, thank you again. Really appreciate it. This is, I really learned a lot about VR and the future of surgical training. This is amazing. Yeah. Thank you, Max. Really appreciate you being uh, so hospitable to me and having me as a guest. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DaVinci Hour podcast presented by DaVinci Academy. Please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow the podcast on your podcast platform of choice to catch the latest episodes. Please leave a comment or a review and share it with a friend. Lastly, you can find all of our podcasts, video courses, and books on our website, dviacademy.com. Thank you for listening.